Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Very quickly, I did the math and, and sort of realized that wasn't going to be it. Um, and it was just quite a, a moment of, uh, I guess, revelation. You've got to do something else. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with property investor and retired actuary Liana Pang whose incredible research and analytical skills have enabled her to build an impressive portfolio holding over 26 properties. Liana explains how she retired from her corporate career early, shares the simple trick to buying property giving you the tools to do the same. It sounds like great work. So, how does Pan spend her time day to day? A typical day will look like, I mean, data plays a big part in my in my day. So, um, I work, for example, last night I would have uh, I would have uh, yesterday spent a lot of time on learning about the budget and the implications that I have on the economy and the property market. So I do uh, a fair bit of reading and research in a day, um, and then also uh, I have a research team um, that help me assist, assist me with all of that stuff. So um, I work with them uh, in, a, in a day-to-day basis. And uh, negotiations is also a big part of my day as well, which is something that I really enjoy. Um, so to you know to get fantastic deals for our members. So that will probably be a typical day for me. That's amazing. And there's so much data, especially in this information overload world. How do you how do you pull all this data together and then go, okay, that's you know where we should be heading? Like I'm actually extremely grateful for the career that I had as a as a data scientist and actuary, uh, which is actually our, our whole job and our whole training is about how to make sense of very a lot of data and very complex data and how to actually understand and find patterns within that data and using that to actually predict the future. So a lot of um, modeling life uh, modeling is involved and understanding data is a big part of our role so um, that skill set really has helped me enormously uh, when you can apply that to any context and I decided to apply that to property. Taking a step back we discussed Pan's upbringing and childhood experience. Oh I, I was born in China um, and actually in the southern part of China and uh, I was uh, in China until I was about 14 and then I came to Australia. Um, and it, it's uh, we, we, I came from a very, very humble beginning. My parents, uh, just to tell you some interesting story, my parents, when they first got married in China, they actually didn't have anywhere to live. 
And so my grandparents took them in and um, built a, a room on top of my grandparents' really old house. I don't know uh, your background, but it's 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 like a, there was no permit, nothing like that. We just built a, like a makeshift room, and uh, my parents thought it was going to be temporary. But uh, I ended up growing up there. I spent probably over ten years um, there, and. Uh, I had a great childhood. I mean, my parents gave me everything they could, but uh, probably I didn't understood, you know, that was uh, what poverty meant until much later on in, in, in life. But that was uh, that was our beginning. I still remember as a little toddler, I was running, I was playing in that room, uh, running around in that room, and I remember feeling that the building was shaking. Um, so that's one of my very clear childhood memories. <laughs> Wow. So you grew up and, and went to school around in, in China as well too. Which which part of China in the south did you say? Fujian province. So not far from Taiwan actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know where that is. Uh, my parents have gone back there. Like my, my mother is originally from Guangzhou. So um, yeah, that's why I've been back there to visit and have a look and uh, been back to those provinces quite yeah, I guess um, it's just history because we like to find out where our background comes from as well too. It's a lot has obviously changed and there's been, you know, so much growth there as well. Have you been back there since then? Yeah, I've been back a few times um, and uh, a lot of the, the the city that I grew up in is unrecognizable today. Just it's it's uh, amazing how much can change in a short sort of space of time in China. Yeah, I can imagine so much as I guess China's moved very, very fast in such a short period of time. It's grown exp- exponentially, you know, with that kind of growth. So, growing up at, um, in China and also going to school, tell me a little bit more about your schooling. What was that like? Yes, in, in China, so like um, like all the parents, they wanted the best for, for the children and um, Mine was no exception. So um, from very, very young age, they, uh, my, my mom, for example, really just taught me how, you know, you've got to really apply yourself and study hard. So I could just remember that I was always studying uh, as a little kid. Um, and uh, I did, uh, re- I was always a good, very good student, very well behaved and good student um, at school. So um, that that's probably one of the uh, biggest thing, and I'm extremely grateful for my parents that for, for instilling that sort of discipline uh, in in myself at a, at a young age. Pam was well equipped with some great habits at a young age, which came in handy when she moved to Australia. Yeah, I started high school in China, um, and then um, obviously. Obviously, halfway through that, I came to Australia and had to study a whole new language. I uh, went to language school for about a year before uh, before we, uh, enrolling in the mainstream high school. So it was a uh, very interesting and difficult time transitioning. But I, I guess it's the same the same mo- most migrant children will go through. And do you know why why your parents and your whole family migrated to Australia? Yeah. So uh, this goes back to the um, to the like my my. Parents really wanted to create a better financial future um, and give provide me with more opportunity. I'm a single child, so provide me with all, more opportunities in the future. So when I was seven, uh, my parents made the really tough decision to send my dad out to Australia. They had to borrow money from friends and family to send him out, and um, they basically had a. a like my dad worked extremely hard in Australia. He was, uh, we didn't see him for seven years. Like we didn't literally 
not come back for seven years, um, and he will be working like three jobs just uh, to save up as much as he possibly could and send all the money home. Um, so it was a very difficult time, challenging time for our family. And I always remember like, you know, one of the things I always remember was that my dad would write letters home all the time. And uh, so seven long years, my father will write letters home all the time. Like every couple of days, we'll get a letter from him. And my mom will actually, you know, read it to herself first, but then read it to, to the whole family. So that was kind of like a ritual for for us, for me growing up. And uh, I will often catch my mom every now and then just reading the letters and crying to herself. So really, it was tough time, especially for my parents. There was just so much sacrifice. I think... Um, in, in today, uh, I can't imagine like can't, I can't imagine uh, sacrificing so much today. But this is something that I guess my parents' generation go through, um, and so I, I've always been very, very grateful for what they've done for me. And from very early age, I really wanted to um, to make them proud. So, you know, by studying really hard and, and doing the best I could and also getting on to a great career and, um, and not having, you know, so that they don't have to worry about uh, retirement and, and finding way in which you can create uh, financial freedom for my parents and myself. Yeah. So I set them up for their retirement. That was a biggest, like really big goal and motivation for me uh, for the past 10, 15 years. Yeah. Yeah, and you've definitely achieved that. You know, it's so great to hear that story. It's amazing, like what what has um, you've been able to achieve, and also what your parents have also been able to achieve for you. Maybe this would be sort of an ignorant question for me to ask about: Were there phones besides the the um, mailing? Did you ever get to talk to your father during those seven years? Yes, yes. Uh, if you remember back in the nineties, um, there was no like mobile phones or something like that, and so every week. Like every week or two weeks, my my dad will actually queue up at the local Telstra phone booth. Like just, <laughs> I, I just unimaginable uh, this day. But the international phone calls used to be so expensive. That's why he used to write, um, and he would allow himself, you know, a few minutes uh, each week and 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 queue up like all the other people that were do, doing similar things and just to talk to my family. So it was always a, was always a very emotional time. Uh, like it was a special occasion once a week that we get to uh, talk to our dad, to talk to my dad, yeah. It, it's heartbreaking for me just to hear that. I mean, like <laughs> I couldn't imagine how your mum must have felt for quite a long time, you know, not to have your father there with you side by side, but just to be able to talk, you know, that once a week or twice or once every two weeks or so it's, it's quite touching to be able to hear that story as well so yeah absolutely and if you look at my parents today they are still so in love after what 30 40 years of 30 40 years of marriage it's incredible and uh because they've been through so much together that uh, you know it actually forms a, a incredibly strong bond after an inspiring sacrifice the family eventually reconnected when she and her mum immigrated to Australia. I've always been Sydney, lived in Sydney my whole, um, ever since I moved to Australia, I've, I've always been in Sydney. So yeah, that's what my where my dad was uh, and he's he was working at a factory as well. So yeah, he was a boilermaker. Oh, okay. Well, explain to me, I'm, I'm, probably I haven't heard boilermaker for a long, long time, but maybe some of the audience might not even know what that is, but explain to people what kind of, what kind of job is that? It's like welding. 
So you put um, like it's, it's usually big steel works. I think the, I can't remember the factory that he used to work for for a very long time, um, and he was a uh, like big industrial sort of industrial beings or um, uh, industrial sort of. I, you know, I can't really remember a lot of what he used to do, but that's what what um, that's the work that he used to do. Uh, lots of manual labor, like very heavy lifting, you know, lots of that stuff. So was was tough. It was tough for him. And mum, did she did she come as well, look after you, take you to school, and did she also go to work as well? Yeah, he he um, she she used to work as well, um, and just sort of doing uh, whatever she could get, um, whatever work she could get. Um, and uh, when I when I was eighteen, nineteen, they started a little business, um, a convenience store, and they were doing. They must have been in that business for more than 10, 15 years, uh, just before until they retired. Being a non-English speaker to begin with, Pan struggled to find her feet in high school. I think the the transitioning the the, the transitioning the cultural shock that was uh, that was the first part of it and but uh, my high school with my uh, with my high school I think they did have really good programs for immigrant children so they really took good care of us so I didn't feel as much of the you know like the the make make the transition easier um, and then it was just about again I was uh, I was a really uh, I really wanted to do really well out of high school. So that academic was my main focus. So I remember going to uh, weekend schools to, to, you know, to improve my learning. Um, and I took up like four unit mess when I was in year 10, for example, and a whole heap of subjects, year 12 subjects. I did um, mass Olympia, physics Olympia, all that sort of stuff. I got into all of that. <laughs> just trying to do the best I could and I really uh, got into it and um, uh, and and you know I, I was uh, ha- had always been a very keen student and um, I got a lot of you know I felt that it was really rewarding for me as well you kind of get into the habit of learning and it just became um, it became a passion a hobby. Pan took her academic strengths further and enrolled in a university degree but going from high school to university level wasn't as effortless as she had imagined. Yeah, it was an interesting transition. Uh, I, I think actuarial science was one of those things where you had to get like 99 or above just to get into that degree. So you came from an environment where you're basically the top of your class all the time to an environment where everybody was like really amazing. <laughs> And so you were competing with that, and so that was a bit of a shock. Um, and that took time to transition, but also because I was very competitive, I wanted to, um, you know, it, it just really uh, made me step up. Um, to so at at university, I also set myself a goal that I really wanted to uh, get myself started on. Um, you know, save as much as I could as well. So I was also working three part-time jobs um, at, at university. And luckily, the university gave me a lot of opportunities. So I was uh, working as a tutor. I was tutoring younger uh, students or year one students and so forth because I, by that time, I would have done, I'd, I've done a lot of uni work before coming into uni, especially in the area of maths. Um, so um, that that worked out really well for me, and uh, you know I was I was just saving as hard as I could because I wanted to you know uh, set myself up as quickly as possible and set my parents up. 
And that was the other thing my parents taught me is just, you know, like the discipline of saving. Um, and, And that's something I'm, again, incredibly grateful for. During her university days, Pan studied a full-time, triple degree and managed to work three jobs while doing it. She tells us a little bit about those jobs. One was as a, um, a tutor. So uh, at uni, you could uh, tutor uh, classes. So I was tutoring when I was in year two in uni, for example, I was tutoring year one students um, and so forth. And so um, I was... Uh, I did three degrees as well, which really helped. So that meant I can tutor lots of different disciplines. So I was doing, I was tutoring statistics, economics, and math subjects at uni, and that really supported me because it was easier. I could just easily go to one of my lectures and then finish my lecture, go to a tutoring class. Um, so that was one. The other one was actually as an IT support at the university library. And that really helped as well. <laughs> so it was just quite a few tutoring jobs for different uh, for different departments, um, and then also being the IT support. So um, really helped because all my all my jobs were actually on campus. So make things a lot easier. Otherwise, it would be pretty difficult. Um, at one stage, I think in, in year two, I was thinking I was doing about sixty hour days, uh, sixty hour weeks. And uh, I wouldn't be able to do that if it wasn't on campus. So I was going to say, imagining the amount of traveling time you would have to go from job to job. <laughs> That's phenomenal. I mean, it's and, and I'm like, how did you manage to fit in three degrees over your? <laughs> That's amazing. I was just basically a massive nerd. Oh, you've done exceptionally well, though. I mean, how long were you at university for? Uh, four years. Wow. Okay. That's that's exceptional. I mean, I, I mostly hear people do double degrees and takes them five years. You managed to do three degrees in, in four years. So, you're, you're obviously, you know, at that level that um, it just, you're able to absorb these things very quickly and be able to, you know, put them through. Oh, I cram, I cram a fair bit of stuffing. But you know, at uni, you don't have to go to, uh, you know, like a, a normal degree will give you maybe 12 contact hours or um, that sort of stuff. So uh, you can actually have two, uh, you can actually do double, triple degrees and, and that would just mean double, triple the contact hours. But it's not, um, yeah, you can still make things work. You just have to make very good use of your time. After years of hard work and coming out of university with plenty of options, Pan settled into a career as an actuary. Um, the actuarial degree was the main thing. I did uh, I did finance degree and computer science, but that was just really um, it. Really helped me because you you need all these um, actuaries are multidisciplinary. So the whole idea is we are we're trained in, we're we're basically statisticians, economists, and um, and a whole lot of disciplines roll into one. And we need to have programming skills as well. So the more you know about this, uh, the better it will equip you to, for a career. So I started with QBE, it was my first uh, first job as a graduate. Um, so I went straight into that from, from university, straight into that, um, and then just being on that actuarial career um, ever since. Was that like a graduate program or was that like a full-time graduate? Uh... It was just a full-time role, yeah. Was it hard to actually go into actuary after you finished studies? Because I guess the job market going back then, what, 10, 20 years ago was probably... It was pretty tough, yeah. It was pretty tough. I, I remember the time that they they basically only really looked at applicants with certain uh, grade point average as well. Um, so, so it was a tough job market. Um, I think it is tougher now. 
um, just because there's a lot of consolidation of the um, insurance companies and um, the, there's actually more uh, supply, like there's more graduates coming out. So, But it was tough even back then, yeah. Which year was that when you graduated and went into QBE? I think it was 2006 or 2007. I think it was just, just a year or so before the GFC. I was lucky I got in before the GFC. Because <laughs> I, I was just thinking that was, yeah, I, I mean, I graduated probably about a few years before you in computer science and even then it was a struggle to try and get, you know, IT because, you know, with the tech boom and everything all kind of changing, it just, yeah, really impacted. And then I assumed that the market was just, you know, a bit buoyant at that time. That's fascinating. Um, so, you're working at QBE. How long did you stay there for? For a couple of years and then I move on to other insurance companies um, and it just sort of move into between insurance companies and banks. Yeah. So overall, how long did your career span within the actuary and science or data science area? So about seven, seven, seven years, seven to eight years, so between seven to eight years. Yeah. Moving on to property, Pan shares the story of her first investment. I started investing property in 2008, actually, uh, in the middle of the GFC. <laughs> One year into the workforce. Yep. Yeah, about a year. So I was just like, um, as soon as I want to save enough. And at that point in time, being an actuary as well, one of the things we actually learn is uh, analyzing all asset classes because that's just basically what, what we do, our learning. Um, so I, I did that as well because I want to explore because very quickly you kind of learn, you can't save your way to financial freedom. If you do the projections, you know, um, superannuations wasn't enough. Um, they they just putting money aside and, and putting it into turn deposit, that wasn't going to be enough. Very quickly I did the math and, and sort of realized that wasn't going to be it. Um, and it was just quite a, a moment of, uh, I guess, revelation. You've got to do something else. And because I was already in the, in the world of assets and investments and stuff, it really made me aware of all the uh, options out there. And I analyzed all the different options and uh, property was hands down the best by far, like from a numbers perspective. I'll get into that a little bit, a little bit later. But yeah, that, that's basically what I said on. I thought, i got to save <laughs> save up for my first deposit. It's really interesting because I think you're the first person to actually point that out. Like it, you're very logical, you're data driven and you've actually worked it all out. A lot of people just go, I got to get a property because it's my first home <laughs> or I got to get a property because I need to plan for the future. But you're able to analyze and see all the different asset classes, you know, from shares to businesses and so forth. And I guess the power of having that knowledge was that you're driven by the data, which, you know, is obviously what's happening there. So, Looking at purchasing that first property in 2008, you know, during the GFC, maybe just share us a little bit background. How did you find this first property? You know, where did you start? Because it's all new to you, wasn't it? Yeah, the property uh, was was new. The principles of um, the analytics behind it, the principles for the analytics, uh, which is actually a, a pricing uh, or like a, a prediction methodology, which uh, I've developed over the years and, and refined and perfected. That was, I guess that wasn't new to me because it's just about applying the same principles, but to a, uh, to a different asset class. Um, and so what I was uh, looking at at the time was um, just uh, from historical data, you can see that there are certain uh, patterns in that data. And I know, I knew that back in 2008, especially at the onset of GFC, it was a great time to invest. 
So one of the things you'll find in historical data and not just in just Australia, but overseas as well, is that every economic shock produces a property boom. So there's a property boom that follows every economic shock. And I kid you not, if you look at our um, historical uh, housing data, going back 100 years, happens every single time. It happened right after the Spanish flu in 1918, for example. There, there's a property boom after that. And I didn't, it was like, wow, that was amazing, amazing discovery. And that was the right time to get into the property market. So I knew that it was the right time. Um, and it was just about doing uh, doing uh, a lot of property research and also just having the guts to make the first step, right? Knowing the numbers, knowing all that theory behind you, um, there's still a whole nother piece of work, which is mindset. <laughs> it's actually pushing yourself to do it. So I've had, um, uh, from day one, I thought to myself, look, I wanted to learn from people that have already done it and could um, uh, already have the results that I wanted to achieve. And, and no offense to, to anyone, my you know parents or family or friends, um, but there was no one in my peer group or family that I could model from. And so um, I actually spent $10,000 of my hard-earned savings and, and pay for a lot of uh, mentoring and coaching, more one-on-one -on -one mentoring and coaching rather than just attending courses and stuff because I need someone to sort of knock me over the head or like bend my head against the wall and say, hey, you need to act, not just not just be fearful and act. And I remember one of the conversations I had with my mentor after, like, you know, I passed up dozens of properties, even though I knew it was the right time to invest. But for some reason, I always managed to find reasons to not go ahead with one property because it wasn't perfect. Um, and... Um, one of my mentors actually said to me, hey, Liana, have you noticed that you're always finding, you're always looking for reasons not to buy? You know, have you ever thought about why you're doing that? It's, you're asking a million questions, but a lot of them are not relevant. Then They don't tie into your big picture at all. So why is that? And really got me uh, thinking, sort of hit me over the head, on the head with it, got me thinking, like, wow, this is just my fear manifesting itself. And it was, uh, it could be forgiving for for uh, feeling the fear because you just have to turn on the TV at that time in 2008 and it's just all doom and gloom. There was just no good news whatsoever. There were so many so-called foreign experts are coming to our country and saying that we are, we're going to face a, a property crash in Australia, you know, 30, 40% drop. And even the cab drivers were telling you not to invest. Right. So you could be forgiven for feeling fearful. But um, the, the end of the story is like, you know, like Warren Buffett says, so when everyone is fearful, be greedy. So faced with a lot of fear and apprehension, how and when did Pan eventually take the plunge? Yeah, it was uh, it was just after a lot of passing out opportunities and my mentor really knocking, you know, talking some sense into me. And if I had the opportunity today, I would have gone back and bought as much as I could back in 2008, right? So, um, and I settled on that that property um, and really fundamentally tick all the boxes. Um, so um, I just took that step to to um, to get onto that property journey and never look back. Excellent. And where was that first property that you purchased? Um, it was in Sydney. Um, and so uh, Sydney at that time happened to be uh, one of the cities that was just 
perfect time in a perfect time uh, to to invest. Um, Sydney and Melbourne, but because I lived in Sydney um, and I took advantage of that, yeah. Are you able to just share with us that first property? What was the property? Why that particular property? Can you give us a background story behind it? It was a property of fit uh, that ticked all the boxes in terms of the the research, um, massive gentrification going through that area, uh, lots of demographic change, population growth, demogra- demographic change as well. Um, and um, it was actually got undergoing a lot of uh, infrastructure. So rejuvenation, which actually combined with gentrification, it was also a very undervalued suburb compared to all the surrounding suburbs. Um, so ticked a lot of boxes. And just so happened, it was at a time when, you know, some developers were having to liquidate their property. So it was a brand new property, brand new property, just built. Um, and the, that particular developer was having some cash flow issues. It was probably not an uncommon problem during the GFC, but it actually opened up the world of opportunities for ne- to negotiate uh, some good discounts. So I got a little bit of a discount on that, on that deal as well. Um, so, you know, everything really added up. Was it the perfect property? No, I didn't like the color of the kitchen. You know, um, you know, I didn't. I, the aspect wasn't perfect, but who cares? That property, I paid four hundred grand for that property. It was like a two-bedroom townhouse or something. Um, and, and today, it's worth over a million dollars. Within her property journey, Pan experienced a few ups and downs along the way. She shares these challenging moments. Yeah, um, it was quite an interesting journey. So I think I, I was very disciplined. I was uh, very cautious for the first few years. Um, and then I wanted to try, you know, after after a few years, I wanted to try different strategies as well. So I, I try to explore different paths, you know, renovations, subdivisions and developments. I've, so I've actually tried all of that. Um, I've had, um, and what I what I did was like, I guess at one point I got sort of a little bit lazy or a little bit cocky, if you like, thinking, oh, well, I've got successes from my um, my acquisition so far, you know, I should, should be able to just do that in other strategies. You know, what I didn't realise was one thing I, I, I realised was that when I didn't spend as much time up front doing the research and, and really knowing like, understanding time in the market, the right location at the right time, um, and just, you know, bought something which I thought, well, I can I can renovate and flip it quickly. Um, I, I got people to, you know, I got mentors and coaches in that space as well who's very good at that particular skill but then not necessarily good at the bigger picture, understanding the research, that part of it. Um, so even when you execute that strategy really well, like a renovation. So I've done reno- I did renovations and made no money out of it. I did renovations and lost money. And and at the end of the day, the biggest lesson there was not buying the right uh, the property at the right time in the right location. And uh, the, another big mistake is actually flipping those properties, so not holding on to them for the long term. Thinking, you know, because a lot of people that are going to, you probably have seen this uh, coaching courses, there's so many coaching courses, uh, which I actually went to at the time as well and actually follow their advice and say, uh, one of the things they were saying is, it doesn't matter what market you're buying your property in, if you execute these value add strategies like renovations and, and developments, you will always make money. That's not true. <laughs> it's not true at all. Um, it was uh, like just it incredibly stressful because I was working full time as well. 
it was so stressful and 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 forget about 60 hours you're basically working non-stop because you're working full time then you got to work on your uh on your project which will be renovations or or developments or whatever that that may be and there's a lot of risks involved uh, there as well. So, you know, what if the council doesn't approve what you proposed? Um, and there was just so much of that going on and so many uncertainties and risks. Penn and I discussed the struggles she faced when trying out renovation strategies and why certain strategies work better for her. I must have grown so much, like so many sleepless nights in, in that period of time. So at the end of the day, the biggest lesson I learned each time is when I make money, it was always because I got the property at the right time, right right location, right time. And, um, and when I lose money, it was not doing that research properly. So, you know, I've done all these strategies and in, in, in some cases I make money, in some cases I haven't made uh, money. So those were probably I would say the interesting, interesting years. Uh, but I always look back on those years and say, "Well, I'm, I'm glad that I've done this. You know, I know what it's like to uh, to do all these different strategies. So I can say." Uh, what strategy works for me? Like someone who's a busy professional, um, who who's got um, who's got a lot going on in their life, it doesn't really have the time to actually to spend that much time doing um, active active um, strategy, property strategies, so to speak. So, what would it be like for uh, people in that in that situation uh, to build a, a portfolio of properties that can give them the passive income, the financial freedom they want? So, this is. The strategy I come back to is to do your research upfront and find just find the property that is right location, right time, um, to make sure that you maximize your chance of getting properties that will beat the average growth over time, um, and build a portfolio from there. And there's a lot of science numbers and signs behind it as well. You can basically uh, build a portfolio and actually pay off all of your debt. So say you buy two properties, you can pay off uh, if that those two properties grow at above average rate and then after 10 years or so, you can actually sell one property and use that to pay off the debt against the other property com- completely. So the strategy is simply, you know, buy twice as many properties as you need roughly and then sell half of them off at the point where you you were ready to consolidate and have the other half completely paid off and paying you a passive income yep yep and that's that's a great strategy and it's a simple strategy i mean anyone can follow it it's just a matter of time yeah it's it's really interesting when you said that as well I'm, I'm also curious about a little bit more about the renovation the property development type of things what kind of say renovations did you do and did you actually manage the trades or did you actually go in and do the renovations too so you with the renovation strategy it's it's about you know um buying a property in a location i worked at locations the chose locations where you can get there is a big gap between unrenovated and renovated properties. But as I said, even if you tick all your boxes, do everything right, if you picked it, the margin on renovations is typically 5 to 10%. Mm, very slim. Um, yeah, it's slim. And what if the property market slides by 5% um, over a 6, 12 months period where you're doing this project? Well, then you lost all of your profit. We move on to discuss Liana's most memorable aha moments where everything seemed to click into place for her. Yeah, there's a lot of aha moments in my journey. <laughs> um, I 
think one of the the biggest aha moment is just leads on from what I uh, talked about before is that research hugely important. Understanding the data and using uh, actually the property market is predictable to a large extent. It's actually predictable. Um, and understanding that is so incredibly important. So there are certain rules, uh, certain rules that I've figured out over the years. Uh, for example, you know, you've got the long-term gross rate for Australian property is incredibly stable. Uh, it's about 6.8 to 7% over time, whether you look at 25 years, 30 years, 50 years, even I've went back 100 years, the 100-year average gross rate for Australian property is seven, about 7%, incredibly stable. Um, and also uh, the, the property cycles, they're not in a straight line. Otherwise, it would be so predictable. You know, right? um, but uh, it, it actually, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, in, within a property cycle, the, the gross rate will be either above the trend line or below the trend line. And the idea is finding points below the trend line, but when the trend line is it's below the trend line, but it's about to accelerate its growth rate to get above the trend line. So you could call it uh, as a 70-30 rule, for example. So a property cycle will spend 70% of its time in stagnation, which you can call above, uh, actually, you know, sort of from going above the trend line to below the trend line, period of stagnation, and a, about 30% of its time in acceleration. So you want to actually get to that point in time um, to, to take advantage of the uplift, that 30%. Timing the market is, is one part of it. And then there are lots of cycles within uh, within Australia. So there's like it's it's not one property cycle. There's so many property cycles. Every city has its own property cycle, um, and so you can always find uh, properties that are in the right uh, right point in cycle to take advantage of the growth. So like research is big aha moment. Just how important it is. Doesn't matter what strategy I implement. Um, yeah, so that's a huge one. And the other one is um, just the strategy that we talked about. Uh, so how do you get properties to pay themselves off? Um, and, and that is a huge aha moment for me um, as well. And you actually don't need to put in more of your savings. I'm not like you don't actually have to live on baked beans for 10 years to get to your financial freedom. You can't doesn't really need to affect your lifestyle. Yeah. Well, this is really good that you pointed out those because it really leads into more about talking about, I guess, the strategies and so forth that you've done. And I really like it that you've hit on the point that you don't need to live on baked beans to you know, build a portfolio. Maybe in, in your situation, what were you able to do? Because as you said, 2008 was a great time to buy property. Did you, did you buy lots of property around that time or did you actually just wait a bit of time to do that? Because you know, it'd be interesting to know how did you actually accelerate growth over the last you know 10 years to between 2008 and 2009 um as i as i predicted there was going to be a property boom and a property boom did come so my first property that i bought for 400 grand grew by a hundred thousand dollars in 12 months so that gave me a uh, hundred grand of capital growth or equity i was able to so the strategy is you don't want to put all uh, your savings continuously over the uh, 10 years, whatever time period that you need to, to uh, accumulate your portfolio, you're using the equity in your property to actually get your next properties. So 
after about 12 months, because that's all the savings I got, I had about 50 grand. So got me started with my first property, but didn't have any more after that. So um, that, that capital growth, a big chunk of capital growth from that first property allowed me to get into two more properties the following year. And those property, again, same same scenario, right location, right time, um, ticks all the boxes in terms of above average capital growth potential. And they were all positive cash flow as well. This is, again, a very, a very, very important thing. From day one, I bought properties that were cash flow positive. So they, all, um, they were all brand new properties. So which meant that they uh, will maximize your depreciation benefits, your tax return, tax refunds. Very important for someone like myself, for example. Um, and, and also they have very good rental yields to start with. So they were positive cash flow uh, often before tax refunds. The tax refunds just add to that. Um, so that's very important because it's, it's, it's good for borrowing capacity later on as well. So the banks can continue to lend your money if your property is doing really well in terms of cash flow. It's paying you to own it, even if you're paying 90% or 100% interest. You know, so that that was one of the key rules that I, uh, that I stuck to. Um, and using that additional funds, like the additional cash flow on that property, not using that to fund your lifestyle, but putting that back into the property to help you pay down that property or putting that towards another uh, deposit for another property. So you are able to pretty much leapfrog from one property to another without having to inject your own cash, you know, and that way you can keep that cash to, I guess, live and, you know, have, have the lifestyle that you want as well until your portfolio generates additional passive income as well. You don't need to inject a, a more of your cash after maybe the first two or three properties. The properties themselves should, you be, should be able to pull out the equity from the properties themselves to keep going. I did both anyway, like being Asian, just the same way all the money to into property so I did both. <laughs> Thriving on accelerated growth, at what point did Pan decide to quit a nine to five job and invest all of her time into property? Um, that was about six years into over five five to six years uh, into my investment journey. So 2013, um, I realized that I was making a lot more, I was actually getting more passive income from my uh, property portfolio than I was from my day job. And at that point, I just realized, oh, you know what? I could do, um, I could spend my time better. I could just do this full time um, because, you know, I can I can look at so many more opportunities. My big dream, like as a data scientist, your big dreams is always being able to uh, do a lot of uh, data analytics. And, and, and by that point, I have truly and really got the property bug. And really want to know everything like the depth of property and how you can uh, make this so predictable and make very accurate predictions is always always about that um so my big dream was to one day be able to uh, to like be able to fund the purchase of a lot of data and and build you know a, a research team around me just to do this full time uh, which is, I'm glad to say that we are able to bring that to to fruition. So, you know, that model just keeps getting refined and refined. But you do need; it's quite expensive to actually uh, to to actually purchase and, and and maintain a lot of data and to to be able to do analytics on. Yeah, and that's the thing. Data is so key. It's like 
gold, you know, in, in our day and age at the moment. I mean, when we look at Google, Facebook, the amount of data that they sell for advertisers is worth a lot of money. It's the same thing as property. You're able to get that data, mine it, and then, you know, find the best value out of it. So, I guess the question maybe pops in my head is why do we not use, say, for example, technology and AI to, you know, use your models, apply your models, and then give us, you know, spit out, I guess, properties or answers to what we're doing rather than human interaction? Is it getting to that point that we would do that in the future or is it you know going to be still human um so if you if you think about a lot of pricing algorithms these days in um in the insurance context or um in data analytics context does uh does include ai already so uh, it's just you know a simple example will be a feedback loop or automatic feedback loop so we're getting getting the algorithms to pick up patterns in the data live data and feed it back and so refine the model um, in in real time. So um, so that that that's been happening uh, since about six or seven years ago now. So a lot of insurance companies already have that. Um, so what I would say is that even in the insurance context, that's 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 why actually do still exist today. You can never leave data to just do its own thing. It's like a black box. You put stuff into the black box, it comes out. You have no idea what it means. Um, and so you always have to apply a judgment layer uh, to to that. So simple examples like um, data can help you identify. So we have like a 94-point checklist, checkpoints that we go through when, we've, uh, when we uh, identify a suburb as, as a, a suburb with the potential for above average capital growth, for example. So but that process... That process, once that suburb comes out, we give them a score. Uh, the suburbs with high scores, we actually look into it. You always need to have on the ground knowledge. You need to know, like, see and feel it. Feel it. There's, a, there's a part of it. That part you can't remove. You can't be completely rely on data. So if you look at some uh, of the companies out there that, are, that only produce data, like results, predictions based on only looking at the data and you can often see that um, you can often see that they they leave a lot for example um, if an area is going through a massive uh, like massive change like massive population grows um, and one of the things you'll see is that new new developments or estates will come through and you might be uh, forgiven and think what well, the, the median data and the median price point might look like it's come out a lot but what it is happening is a lot of the new sales are actually new properties whereas uh, you know sales a few had to happen a few years ago are the the older properties so it's not comparing apples to apples and that also skews as well the property prices too in that particular suburb thinking wow that that area has gone through massive growth but if you look into it you might flag that area um, and, and if you look into it, you realize, wow, actually the mix of properties that get sold over time are actually different. So just to give you a simple example, so the, there's there's a, a lot of data cleaning you can do, but this this type of data, like this, it's very hard to clean up that. Being equipped with so much knowledge around data is incredibly progressive for Pan. I ask her what the data is suggesting about the market around this time with the current pandemic still in play. I'll go so far as saying that the boom is happening, like it's starting to now. So all of the factors that drove 
the past uh, past boom. So one of one part of our uh, which which is like our. Uh, prediction methodology, which I call four pillars of prediction. One of the pillars is, in fact, studying uh, studying uh, external events that have profound impact on the market. So things like economic shocks or a pandemic is a perfect example of that. And studying how that affects market. So certain factors that have happened in the past. Um, whether it's happening again, because if it's happening again, the same thing will happen again. So, um, and and that is exactly what's happening. So. 2008 during the GFC, what happened after the GFC is the government injected a lot of stimulus um, into the economy, and there was a lot of direct stimulus for the housing industry. So, for example, they doubled the first home buyers grant, they increased you know grants to encourage people to buy brand new properties, therefore stimulating the construction industry. They fast tracked a lot of infrastructure projects. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? In the last few months, right, um, and uh, we just uh, got the budget uh, two days ago, which is very, very exciting because they've in- introduced more tax cuts. They've introduced um, an in, uh, initiative to create more jobs, um, and all of and, and they fast forward a whole bunch of infrastructure projects um, as well. And what is different this time is the scale of the stimulus. So back in two thousand eight, uh, the government spent about ten billion dollars. And so far, this government has spent about five hundred billion dollars. Completely dwarfs what was happening in two thousand eight. So, can you imagine the magnitude of this boom? So, if anything, I think the same thing is going to happen. It's just the scale for this time around is going to be, I would say, bigger than last time. The last. Year. It sounds like they're trying to move it quickly because there's still a lot of fear around the coronavirus, you know, pandemic that's still happening around people still trapped inside or well, not trapped, but, you know, staying at home. So I guess there's more and more people wanting to, I guess, you know, get their own property, you know, live in somewhere that, that's stable. Yeah, absolutely. There's always a, um, a fear for um, at times like this, people often lose faith in assets that are liquid just because it can change so much. Like from the beginning of this year till the onset of the the, uh, the pandemic, for example, property market lost 30 to 40% in, in a period of two or three weeks. And uh, the same thing happened during the GFC. Um, the, the, during the GFC, the Australian share market fell by 55%. And yet uh, around the same time, uh, the property market fell across Australia only by 5%. So it's so much more stable and resilient against any economic shocks. So whenever economic shock happens, people lose faith in the share market and take their money out. They want to invest it in safer assets. Um, and so, like you know, if if you are looking at superannuation, for example, it's 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 quite an interesting area. People always transition uh, from shares to to brick and mortar at times of crisis like this. Um, and you, you know, you can't you can't blame them for for doing that because imagine if you're trying to retire in 2008 and suddenly half of your retirement fund was gone. It'd be a scary thing. <laughs> so that's why the, the people flocked to or moved into secure assets such as physical assets like property, which is very very common. And then you also got interest rate; it switches down to the lowest it's ever been historically. So it's never been cheaper to borrow money. You also got like governments just uh, relaxing the lending policies again and again. And they actually just put out an announcement on my birthday, on the 24th, 24th of September, they announced that they're going to uh, simplify a whole set of rules um, to make lending easier with the implications that borrowing capacity for everybody will increase um, and the whole 
finance process will be a lot more, uh, a, a lot faster. Um, and so that will just encourage even more people to because they can afford to buy more now. They can encourage more people into the property market. And then you've got the first home, uh, uh, home builder grant. Um, and you've also got so many other incentives for first home buyers coming in. So like it's, it's the, for a first home buyer right now, it's never been a better time because they, they get, they get something. We did the math across all cities and states just to see how much the level of incentives they can get from each of the federal government, state government, um, and, and so forth. And it adds up to about, um, 80 to a hundred thousand dollars of incentives that they can get to buy their first property, right? So imagine how much, how hard is it to save that much money for a first-home buyer? So all of a sudden, like before you might have this many people that can afford to buy their first property, all of a sudden the floodgate opens. Um, so that's already happening in the past couple of months. Pan and I move on from discussing the market to discussing her current motivations. Having achieved financial freedom and having seen her parents retire comfortably, she has done what she initially set out to do. So, what now? What is her why moving forward? My why, there's this couple of reasons. One, I am a nerd, so I do love data and the data actually that I'm working with now, the, the building the research team and just getting deeper and deeper understanding of um, how to build, you know, perfect this model, that actually has real applications in life. Um, so it's, that's, that's, that in itself is, is an extremely rewarding experience, seeing there's nothing satisfying as seeing your predictions coming true um, time and time again and really helped your, uh, not just, me personally financially but now members of the freedom community as well now i guess that brings us to the second part of it is is that um we want to help as many people as we can to achieve the same outcomes that we have been able to achieve of myself my business partner uh scott crew and um, all the members of the freedom community and also our freedom team like our freedom team is over 70 people strong today um all of these people are actually interested in in building their own portfolio for following this the same strategy so you kind of feel responsible that that's why you work extra extra hard because you wanna uh, you're putting your your um, your family and friends and then team our team members uh, livelihood or like you know savings into these properties. You want to make sure that you do uh, the absolute best you can to make sure you pick the right properties. So that's been driving us, and our mission is actually uh, with Freedom is to help. 10,000 families or individuals to achieve their own financial freedom um, in the next five to 10 years. So that's been our big mission. I mean, I've, I've done, uh, after I quit my actuarial job, I did actually go uh, traveling and go overseas and did the whole, you know, um, uh, lifestyle of doing nothing, basically doing nothing. Um, and it got boring pretty quickly. That's what I hear a lot. <laughs> it's like people when they say they've achieved financial freedom, it, it's it's more than life, you know, and they, they find something that's going to be purposeful and, and that's what it sounds like you found your purpose now is to help others and achieve that. How far off are you from uh, achieving the, the goal that you've set or the vision that you and your company have set? Yeah, we've got uh, about 2,000 
members now in our community, which is growing and, and it's growing uh, really fast, even um, during the midst of uh, COVID. And I think a lot of people are waking up. They understand that they have to take what the media is saying with a big grain of salt. And um, this is uh, waking up to the fact that this is now a great opportunity window. Um, so that's why we're getting record numbers of members uh, joining us, which is, uh, you know, uh, amazing because the bigger our community, the, the the bigger and stronger our negotiation power is. Um, so, yeah, so we're about 2,000 members strong and uh, we'll be we're absolutely confident that we can grow this membership to about 10,000 and helping them um, achieve, like we like to be able to have that member going through the whole investment journey with a, with us and to the point where they have achieved their financial freedom. Um, you know, that, that, that will be, that whole journey will be incredibly gratifying for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, especially when you, you join a community like yours and implement in action and get results, you know, it's a no-brainer, you know, to be able to be part of something like that and especially you surround yourself with the right mindset because that's the hardest thing is finding the right community to be part of and learning from them and you know, have great mentors like yourself as well too to be able to support and coach them through that process. Yeah, I've definitely benefited from mentoring and coaching um, in, in, in my time and also I continue to have to look to mentors and coaches as well uh, and just that's incredibly um, important because they help you, um, they help the biggest the biggest help they uh, they give is mindset. Is actually just uh, just making sure. Like for example, when you are in a state of fear, you can't make good decisions, and they can pull you out of that, and they can point it point it out to you. So mindset is actually incredibly important, um, and that's actually uh, what I spend. Like I say, every everybody should spend most of their time working on their mindset, and it's a con, it's a never end it's a never ending journey. While on the subject, Pan shares her biggest motivators and inspirations who have helped her succeed in her personal journey. One of uh, my biggest mentors uh, that I've uh, you know been listening to and following for many many years now is Tony Robbins. Um, so uh, I'm being you know probably probably looked at his um, first looked at his material back in 2007 2008 as well as just when I was starting this journey um, and that whole personal development space has just, just been a journey that I've embarked on uh, more and more so I've been through all of his programs for all of his books um, and it's been incredibly helpful because you can put in, in in terms a lot of like just the language around and making yourself incredibly aware of some of the things that you're doing to yourself that you may not be consciously aware of, you know, they're driven by fear. They're not driven by um, any sort of any, any, anything logical. And also it's just a, um, one of the things, a habit that I got into uh, doing is uh, setting yourself a goal. So um, once, at least once a year, you set yourself like a, a vision board um, and with goals for different aspects of your life um, and visualize that as much as you possibly like re on a regular basis so that was something that i really stuck on doing um and and i wouldn't have picked it up if i didn't come across mentors like like tony um so so and, and it's it's amazing what you do when what you focus on the universe managed to bring it to you so you know the more you focus on on one thing um and this is a goal that i set for myself it was completely non-negotiable it was just 
no, like I, uh, the goal that I set for myself when I was 20 was that I wanted to retire from my career by the age of 30, having, having uh, managed to find a way to build a passive income for myself and my family. And I achieved that um, because I really focused on it for, um, and I was telling everybody about it. And I was, <laughs> it was very, very funny because I was talking to, um, uh, talking to someone, uh, one of my old colleagues, and, and and he just said, "Liana, do you remember that you were telling us about it, telling me about it uh, uh, at that point in time?" I could just imagine some people would just say, "Well, good luck to you," but by um, speaking it out loud, it's like you're committing, you, you're holding yourself accountable. Knowing everything that she does now, what would Pan say to her younger self if she could go back to ten years ago? I met myself ten years ago. I uh, would have would have probably just said, you know, take action, take more action, uh, you know, don't procrastinate. And uh, I have, like, it's a very interesting thing. I talk to investors all the time and uh, I w- I'll say the same thing to myself, start earlier if I could, <laughs> start investing earlier uh, if I could. And uh, I talk to investors all the same time and I've never met an investor that told me I wish I started later in everyone. I wish I started earlier. I wish I didn't sell that property. I wish I hold on to it, whatever, whatever that may be. Uh, or I wish I had mentor earlier in my life. You know, it's 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 all. So, if I was to go back uh, ten years ago to myself, I would have said said those things. Hindsight, we always reflect back and go, you know, wish we could change that because you don't know what you don't know until you reach the point and destination. Uh, I guess I'm looking now forward for five years. What are you most excited about in your journey? And I think you've kind of covered it, but I, I thought I'd still ask that question as well, unless it's any different to what you've talked about. That mission, which is the freedom mission of so myself, my business partner, and our entire um, freedom team, is is to help. You know, we have amazing, incredibly amazing um, uh, property coaches and strategists in our team um, today that have achieved, you know, incredible results for themselves, um, but also huge on um, helping others uh, do the same. So our mission, our team mission is actually to be able to bring that to fruition. You know, if we can help 10,000 people or more, um, you know, be on that journey to achieve their financial freedom and seeing that happen, you know, transformation and, you know, just asking them to pay that forward as well. Uh, imagine what a difference it could make. So that, that's that been our biggest huge goal and I would be, I'll be um, incredibly happy. We're already very happy being on this journey. How did you come up with the number 10,000, by the way? Uh, it's a goal. It's a number that we set and we thought that uh, it's like a big big uh big goal <laughs> at the time, yeah, audacious goal at the time we said it we didn't think we we're gonna you know we think oh my god that's such a huge number um but but you know without having set those huge goals uh for your, for yourself um things don't happen and and it's it's amazing when you do that like uh, you know a lot of things a lot of opportunities you're not seeing before um you're opening your eyes to it so, how much of Pan's success is due to skill, intelligence and hard work and how much of it is based on luck? I think I really like this saying, actually this comes from uh, Tony, is that just the more you focus on something, um, the more you work at it and the harder you work, the luckier you get. <laughs> and that goes back to the same thing, you know, the, the, the more you honing on something, um, the the more your eyes will be open to things that you just, you would just, 
your mind would have just overlooked before. And perfect example is like if you go out and buy a car and from the very next day you suddenly notice that a lot of people are driving the same car. You notice every car that is your car, right? But if you haven't, if you are not aware of it in the first place, then you wouldn't be looking for it. Thank you to Liana Pang, our guest on this episode of Property Invest Story. If you want to hear more about her journey and get a copy of the episode guide on the website, head over to propertyinveststory.com forward slash guide. This guide will give you the inside scoop on little gold nuggets of wisdom, all our guests share from their backstory and all the overall strategies and philosophies. Plus, you'll get a copy of the advice broken down and shared in a quick and easy to consume format. Just head over to propertyinveststory.com forward slash guide and download it today.